You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Welcome to Season 2 of the Inside Intercom Podcast. If you're new to the show or want to revisit previous episodes, those are all available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and at intercom.io slash podcast. This week, we're taking a deep dive into the world of product design and the principles behind it, from designing experiences for more than a billion users to conversational bots aiming to be personal yet practical. Our headlining guest is Julie Zhu, the Vice President of Product Design at Facebook. If you don't already know Julie from her well-acclaimed essays on Medium, you're surely familiar with her work. In more than 10 years at Facebook, she's had a direct hand in crafting the content of your newsfeed, the ways you like and react to posts, how you share photos, and much, much more. I do think that the holy grail of good design is experience that's you know useful, easy to use, and accessible, and enjoyable. And consider something really, really well designed. It's going to kind of check all of those boxes. After you hear from Julie, Intercom Managing Editor John Collins sits down with our own Director of Product Design, Emmett Connolly. Emmett's been writing quite a bit about the possibilities and limitations of conversational bot design. When and where should the role of a real human stop and the work of a bot take over? Emmett recently outlined his eight principles for conversational UI design on our Inside Intercom blog and goes deeper on the idea with John here. A lot of the temptation I think that emerges for designers when there's so much sound and fury and hype around these exciting new things like conversational commerce is to apply them to all sorts of different things and it becomes this kind of when all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail. I think if you just always focus on what's best for the end user rather than what's really fun or interesting to apply that'll usually drive you towards the best results. And with that Let's get into our interview with Julie Zhu. Julie, thanks so much for joining us. So you just reached your 10-year anniversary at Facebook. Congratulations. Obviously, that's such a big milestone. Um, For some of our listeners who may not be as intimately familiar with your work, how has your role grown and evolved in that time? And what are some of the bigger products within the product that your work is most closely aligned with a few milestones? So it's been definitely a, a wild journey. Uh, I actually started out as an engineering intern. I believe I was Facebook's first intern. Uh, so I had just graduated from school and, you know, very quickly on, I loved the environment, decided to convert to full time even after like a couple of weeks. And as an engineer, you know, I was working on a lot of front end products, but I had a lot of interest in design. I didn't even know it was called design. I hadn't studied it formally, but, you know, growing up, I had done a lot of web design just on my own. I loved uh, digital illustration. You know, I was like always in Photoshop, like in my free time. And so I very quickly sort of moved into a role that was designing and also a front end engineer. Uh, at the time, you know, we, we kind of expected all of our designers to also be front end engineers uh, and to be responsible for, uh, you know, the CSS and the JavaScript and the front end PHP. So it was sort of a very natural transition. And then 
you know, I sort of got much more down into the design path, you know, learned a lot from the designers who I was working with, who are uh, been amazing mentors to me over the years and uh, uh, kind of worked more and more on the design side and, and less and less on the engineering side. And so some of the, you know, earlier, the earliest project I worked on was photos. Um, and then I worked on, you know, the first version of Facebook uh, platform. And so this is like how you can log in to other services using Facebook. Um, you know, we were, one of the first website applications to kind of pioneer that that kind of third-party login. So I've sort of worked on a lot of the the core uh, parts of Facebook over the years, things like newsfeed, um, the like button, you know, obviously photos and videos. And now what I do is I oversee kind of what, what we consider our core Facebook app. So this is basically the experience that people have when they open Facebook, they see newsfeed, they share, um, they see different kinds of content. And that's the space that uh, I oversee design for today. That's quite a career evolution. The transition to management is, is always challenging, regardless of the field you're in, whether it's design, engineering, marketing, what have you. What's the biggest challenge been for you in that process? And how involved are you today in the design details? It's, it's a really, really interesting because, uh, you know, I've sort of went through the transition myself at this point, maybe six or so years ago. Um, and I find that, you know, as you manage and you're managing larger and larger teams, you know, there's, there's a lot to kind of uh, learn and the role is constantly evolving. Um, I think for me, transitioning from being an individual contributor to a manager in those early days, I think one of the, the hardest and, and kind of most necessary lessons to learn is, is kind of knowing what pieces to let go. Because uh, I think that as a manager, you know, how I see my success today um, is really around, you know, do I have a team that is able to produce really high quality design work? And are they set up for success? And do they feel like they're in an environment that rewards them and allows them to do their best work? And so, you know, a lot of the role of the manager, again, is, is over time, just being able to more set up and create that environment for success and less and less about like making all of the decisions and being in the details and saying, you know, I have an opinion on this and I have an opinion on that. Like, I really believe that in order to build a great uh, team or a great company or a great organization, it's it's about knowing, you know, and, and spending more of your time as a manager thinking about the environment that enables other people to be successful. Um, and so, of course, that's a transition of figuring out how to let go, right? And mm -hmm. the lucky thing for me was I had um, a number of years where I was managing a smaller team. I was able to still do some product design work on my own. And then as time passed, you know, uh, a team grew larger. So I could, I had to sort of learn how to give up more and more of that and empower individuals on my team to take on more and more of that. Um, and then you fast forward a couple of years and then it was about uh, managing managers and coaching managers who then are, you know, managing the individual designers. And I think it's just a process of figuring out, well, what is the most important and leveraged thing that I could be doing, which in a lot of cases isn't making the product decisions myself, but is in figuring out how to hire great people, how to uh, have a great process so that people are sort of focused on the right things and about communicating and making sure everyone's aligned on what's important. One of the things I really love about your work is you're willing to share your philosophy and so much of your guidance on essays on Medium. We're big fans of Intercom. We share them a lot in our, our newsletters and our What We're Reading section. And in one recent piece that was more of an, an infographic you created, you described the holy grail of good design as the creation of an experience that's enjoyable, useful, and also easy and accessible. And I feel like it's somewhere like Facebook that's got to be extremely challenging because you're designing for a billion plus people across the globe and 
they all have different contexts and definitions for what those things mean. So how do you stay true to that concept while designing for an audience that really doesn't have an, an average user? Yeah, you know, we had to give up on the concept of an average user many years ago when, you know, it, it stopped being people that that were like us, right? Like uh, college students or recent college grads. And it started to become, you know, more global and uh, to include people and, and in places that we had never been to and couldn't understand their lives. And so a lot of what we do today is, you know, we... we we make it a big uh, focus of ours to to try and understand our global community better. We've built up a really wonderful research team over the years, um, and now we have teams that work on you know uh, the product, thinking about specific markets. So you know, like teams that are focused on India or or Latin America, because you know they're they're very very different markets. And, you know, what we'll do now is we'll actually send the team frequently over there. Like I think at, at any um, given month, you know, there's probably a bunch of people, engineers, designers, researchers who are like in India or in Brazil or, or in various places all over the world where they're sitting down, they're talking with uh, people who use Facebook. They're trying to sort of understand um, and ask them questions and understand like what are their problems? What are their needs? You know, how do they go about their day and what are the opportunities that we we have to try and build products that that make their lives a little bit better. So research is a huge part of uh, our process now and in trying to understand the, the global community. And again, it's not just like trying to distill it down to like, here's one profile. It's, it's many, many different profiles. And we have teams that now, you know, uh, in a lot of cases are focused on specific markets or specific people in, in particular audiences. So that's definitely a huge part of it. Um, I think the other Thing, you know, I'll sort of say about the product is like my heart of hearts, I believe that it's possible to have a product that introduces more and more power and has more and more different functionality in a way that doesn't increase complexity. And I think that that's a hard thing to accomplish. Uh, and I think that there's a lot that we need to do to continue to be better in that respect. But I don't think that, you know, it's completely at odds that you can't have something be powerful, but also have it not feel super complex. Um, I think one of the best examples of the ways that we've done that at Facebook is around, you know, newsfeed, right? Our goal in Newsfeast is to make sure that, you know, as, as a person who's reading it, you know, that we can try and surface the most interesting content to you that, that you would think is, is interesting. Maybe your friend doesn't, maybe your significant other doesn't because they have different interests, but our goal is to try and make that as personalized and as interesting to each individual as possible. And that means, you know, everybody's newsfeed is different, right? Um, you know, I'm into design. Um, I'm really, you know, catching up on, on the warriors and, and how they're doing it. And, you know, and so my newsfeed is filled with content about that. And of course I have different friends than you do, but my experience is um, extremely tailored to me and, you know, we're trying to make that experience better and better. And I think that that can extend to the ways that we think about um, a lot of our other products as well. You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. An app that lets customers slip away is an app that fails. Learn how to retain your customers at intercom.com engage. There's a great story you've shared about your your first design job and internship at Microsoft OneNote. And I feel like all of us that when we were younger had internships have these memories of the mythical larger figures in the office <laughs> who may only speak to you one or two times and you don't know if to take it literally or if it's guidance or it 
a lot of thoughts go through your head. And you had said that Chris Prattley had told you something that essentially boiled down to good design feels obvious. What does that mean to you and why has it stuck with you all this time? Yeah, um, I think for me, uh, it was like, it sort of felt like a, such a simple thing to say. And, um, you know, he actually followed up with like, you know, it, it's obvious when you see the solution, it isn't obvious to, to come up with that solution. You right. know, and you can try for many, many months and you can try like a hundred ideas, but you know, it's the right one when you show someone and they're like, yeah, like, of course, or that, you know, it, it's like, why are you so excited? It doesn't seem like that hard. And, and I think his point was like, you know, it's not about that aha, that insight that like nobody else, you know, could ever like see because it's just like so complicated or so, you know, kind of out there. It's like it might be hard to come up with that insight, but a lot of times the right solution for people just feels right. You know, it, it doesn't mean that they have to learn something completely new. It's like you use it and you know it's right and you don't have to do a bunch of explanation uh, around why this is good or why it's better. And I think about that a lot because um, I think that what's very easy for us sometimes when we build products, you know, because again, the, the process is quite messy and the process never seems obvious and the path that you take, um, it's, it's sometimes not clear where to go next. I sometimes see teams um, and they get caught up in this, this kind of situation where they feel so constrained, right? And, and they have this idea and it's almost like they're trying to figure out how to defend the idea, you know, and they're saying, well, you know, like this is the best idea because X, Y, and Z and, and everybody else in the room is trying to give some arguments for why it's, this doesn't feel that great or whatever. And I think that it's sort of very interesting because every time now when I, I see that sort of situation, to me that automatically short circuits into like if people can't who use the product and who can't all agree that this actually feels good, then it probably isn't the ideal thing. Perhaps it's the ideal thing given the constraints that we have or given the way that we've positioned it, but it doesn't strike me as like this is actually the right solution because uh, if it were, then you know, you'd be able to give it to a bunch of people out there and, and they would be like, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So I use it for myself as a reminder of like, you know, sometimes when we've worked on something for a really long time and we know it really well and we're just trying to defend it, you know, we just want to see this idea go through. A lot of times it just might not be the best idea because, you know, we're still embroiled in so many reasons why when you show it to people, they're not saying that it, it makes sense to them. Right. It almost seems like, too, there's that that point of validation where when you put it in the user's hands yeah. and you've been iterating for nine months and it yeah. does feel obvious that it, it's all worth it. We all get it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of process and teams, I know Facebook takes a very collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to team building. You've got product managers, designers, engineers, all working alongside each other. So there's a lot of voices in the room and there's a lot of collaboration and it probably results in much, much more iteration and ideally a much more obvious to the user final product. Is there an ideal ratio for designers to engineers and what can they learn from each other? Yes. Um, it's an interesting question. You know, recently I was at a dinner with a bunch of other uh, design managers at various companies and we were talking a bit about this ideal ratio. And I don't think that there's sort of just some number or, you know, that, that, you know, we kind of threw out, I think, a range that was from like, sometimes it's, you know, four engineers to designers, sometimes it's like 10. And I actually think it's so contextual based on the project, right? Because, you know, certain projects are much more sort of about the experience and the, the surface that the user is interacting with. And I think that that determines what is the correct ratio. Um, other projects are also, 
you know, I, I think you can contrast kind of like a, a project that's in the conceptual stage where you're trying to find product market fit and therefore you're going to do, you know, dozens of different explorations with different models and different ideas. And that's going to be a much more design heavy process up front versus if, you know, you have a product that's got great product market fit, you're making a bunch of uh, optimizations to try and make it work better. And, and that might require fewer designers compared to the number of engineers. So I don't think that it's sort of any perfect ratio. I think it really depends on like, what does the problem need and how much sort of exploration and design work does it need versus how much just, you know, execution on building it. Right, right. And Facebook is known for shipping so continuously and so fast. So does the way that you guys uh, build these teams with all these multidisciplines, does it help with that? Does it make it even more of a challenge to continuously ship? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, if you get diverse perspectives um, and what that's what to me and multidisciplinary teams provide, right, um, that, you know, what you want is the team to kind of really own the problem that they've signed up to solve and to, to have each member of that team feel, feel very, very invested in that problem and being able to work their way towards uh, a solution that would, you know, successfully solve that problem. And so to me, that's sort of the high level of like, this is what binds everyone together. And then, you know, but, but you're going to have different perspectives, right? You're going to have people who are um, thinking about maybe different ways uh, to best accomplish that. And I actually think it's the push and pull that ultimately results in um, the best product. You know, I get a little bit concerned if like teams are always in agreement hundred percent of the time, because then you're just like, you're probably not getting the kind of discourse and debate that actually gets the product to shift this way and that until it's, it's actually better. Um, and I also think that, you know, uh, there's a lot that, that each discipline can learn from the other disciplines. A lot of our listeners are very early stage startup folk, a lot of early founders, smaller companies. You said earlier in your career that you were a skeptic of design principles, but since have professed to coming very much around to them. How crucial is it to establish a clear set of design principles early for a startup? And what are some examples that are actually meaningful rather than obvious? Yeah, um, I think the question of when it is necessary is, you know, for me, the a lot of the purpose of, of having, you know, design principles is to really align people around what matters. You know, what is unique about the way that we as a team or as an organization, a company, a product thinks that might be different from the way that other companies think. And I think every company has that, you know, like you don't go and find two companies that are like exactly alike. Right. And, and so I think a good set of principles tries and encodes that so that everyone can then have this shared sense of what's important for, for us, you know, and, and what's true to us. And so when new people join or, you know, your, your company's scaling, then it becomes easier for them to understand that those things that, that are, you know, so unique and so important about the way that, that you think you do things and what you value. And so, you know, if you're like two people or three people and you guys are, you know, like, just talking every day and you have like a complete mind meld, then like, do you need to spend a couple hours just to write it out? Like maybe, maybe not, you know, maybe it's not a problem. It's not, you know, it doesn't sort of do anything at that point, but at the point of, you know, which you're growing and now you've got, you know, 20, 40, you know, and you, you're on a path to, to, to get many more people to join your company, then it starts to become, I think, a little bit more important to try and encode your principles for your product. And, and not just that, but even just your culture or all of these other things that are really important to you and your company or your team being the way that you are. 
Um, and so, you know, I go back and say, it's not just about producing the list. It's not just about like, hey, look, we've got like, you know, some design values. I think the other thing that is important is like, what is, again, unique or is, um, we come up with all sorts of things that are going to feel good. Like, you know, we care about simplicity and uh, we care about, you know, uh, of people, right? But it's like when push comes to shove and you have to make a trade-off or you have to sort of do something that uh, how are you in those moments as a team or company going to prioritize? Like, what are you going to care about the most? And I think good values will try and be controversial in that respect because it's it's just something that, you know, another company have made a different decision than you. Um, and that's what I think is important to kind of try and codify. So as companies set these things early, but they do begin to scale and hire more, a lot of the people that did a lot of the hands-on design work eventually have to make big bets on new early hires and hand those things over to people who can share in their vision. What key traits do you see in a young designer that makes you think, I can take a chance on this person and give them a shot here? And how do you set them up for success? Yeah, I think for me, in a, looking at a young or earlier career designer, I think probably the most important trait is kind of self-awareness, I would say, and proactivity. Um, I define them as like, you know, self-awareness means a person is reflective, understands like where they are, thinks about where they want to go, um, you know, knows like here are the skills that I'm sort of stronger in, here's are the skills that I want to continue to develop. And I find that, that you know, if you have the self-awareness and you also then have the proactive drive to learn and get better in your skills, then that means, you know, that equation translates three years down the line. Like you're going to be awesome. You'll have learned like all the stuff you're going to like, you know, um, not be afraid of like new challenges and you're going to continually be able to kind of grow with the team or with the company. So, so those are probably the things that I, I think are, are most important. One thing you've written about in the past that I know people that are new to the industry experience, as well as people that are veterans and have been around a long time, it's it's almost inescapable, is the idea of the imposter syndrome. You've written about that in a way that I think any of us can relate to on Medium. Why do you think it is, as you wrote, that insecurities never fully disappear? And is this especially true for women in male-dominated fields? Is that something that you've seen? Uh, I think there's data that shows that this is something that is more true, you know, for, for women. For example, I mean, the data suggests that like, you know, when reading a, a list of job recs, right, you know, it's like you're applying for a job and you're looking at like what the requirements are. Women will only apply if they think they meet 100% of those requirements. And men will, you know, on average, you know, if they meet 60%, they'll be like, all right, I, I'm ready to apply. And so I think that there are actually like we now have evidence and uh, a bunch of, you know, studies and surveys to indicate that there are things that tend to hold women back more. But on the uh, subject of the imposter syndrome, I, you know, I, I do think that everyone goes through it. And I think the reason why it never fully disappears is that I think that, you know, as, as people, like nobody is perfect. That we're, we're all failing, right, in some respects. And we will continue to, you know, there's no point that I think you reach where you're like, cool, I'm done failing at stuff in my life, everything I do from here on out is just going to be successful. I just think that that's, that's never the case. Um, sounds unhealthy if you're thinking that way. <laughs> yes. And I think that at the same time, you know, we, we are, you know, social creatures and we want to feel like we belong. We want to feel like, um, you know, our peers think well of us. We want to be respected. Um, and so a lot of times failure, it's sort of like, um, 
there's a tension there where you're, you're like, wow, I failed. And now I'm afraid of what people will think, or, you know, I, I'm not perfect at this thing. Like what, you know, do I belong? Like, do I conform? You know, do I feel like I can fit in? Right. And, and no matter where you are, and I think that this is like true now, having talked about this with enough people and, and with enough good friends and even hearing, you know, really, really prominent leaders speak about this stuff. I just, I've gotten to the point where I just don't believe that, you know, I, I think that it's like part of the human journey to feel this way. And it's, it's not like you can expect it'll go away. So then the thing we have to do is try and um, adopt tactics uh, to, to help us deal with that. So that when we do feel that way, and we feel like we're failures, that there's, you know, tactics we can use to help bring ourselves out of that, you know, and to acknowledge that it's not just me, it's I'm not the only one who's, you know, feeling this way, or that, wow, like, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who can't figure out like, what's what's going on. I think that that's, um, a kind of a universal thing. It's all about how you embrace it and the way that you, you frame it in your mind. Yes. I think we'll end here on a note that looks forward a little bit. Um, so at Intercom, we talk a lot about the jobs to be done theory and believing that people primarily use products to get a job done and they make a switch because they think that a product will do something better, easier, faster, etc. You've said that in the future, you think products will be used because of style and how it makes someone feel, not because of necessarily utility. Could you explain that a little bit and talk about, I mean, is, is that ultimately thinking that design is the, the market differentiator there? I would say that, you know, I do think that the holy grail of good design is experience that's, you know, useful, easy to use and accessible and enjoyable. And consider something really, really well designed. It's going to kind of check all of those boxes. But I do think that there is this kind of hierarchy or this pyramid of how you look at it, right? Because I don't think people use stuff even if it's easy to use and enjoyable, unless it's useful to them. Right. But I think that, you know, um, a lot of times when you have multiple products or services that fulfill that useful need, then the next thing you look at is, okay, great, which one is, is easier or more accessible to me? You know, um, which one's like kind of either cheaper if you talk about price or it's just like, you know, I can get this thing that I need to do faster. So I've got all these products. They, they all fulfill, you know, this use case. They're all quite accessible and easy. And um, now how do I differentiate? And the, I think the way that people then differentiate is how it makes them feel. And I think that maybe if you look at clothing or fashion, that's maybe the best you know, example. So, you know, thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, right? Like we, you know, looked at clothing simply as um, a function of usefulness. Like I need fur to keep me warm in the winter, you know, yeah. and and as time passed, it's like, great, you know, now I've got lots of things that keep me warm in the winter. So, you know, um, what's what's easier, you know, like what's easier for me to access? Is it like cotton? Is it, you know, whatever, uh, you know, what's, what's cheaper, et cetera. And now I think you get to this market where how most people pick their fashion is is usually a factor of like cost and then the style. Like we spend a lot of time thinking about all of these different brands. And it's like, if I wear this, how is that going to make me feel? How is that going to make me look? And I actually think fashion is, is much more at this point, the competition is around that highest rung, which is, uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, or the, the top two runs. It's, it's less and less about like, you know, I have to get this thing because it's the only thing that is going to make me feel warm and uh, fulfill its functionality. And so I do think that as products evolve and as our technologies become better and as it's just easier to to have more different competitive products in the marketplace, um, the competition just moves higher and a higher up um, in that pyramid. I love that fashion metaphor. It makes it so, so relatable for any of us on any end of the spectrum. 
Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. A lot of fun. I think our listeners will get a lot of great value from this. Cool. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000 plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. I'm here with Emmett Connolly, Director of Product Design at Intercom, to talk about designing bots. Emmett, you wrote a great post recently about this, Principles of Bot Design. And as you said, there's been a lot of self-assured sermons about messaging bots, including by your own admission, some that you wrote yourself. It's no doubt an exciting space, but is it time to get real about chatbots and what they're useful for? Yeah, that's fair. I'm definitely a bit guilty of that. Uh, I guess with this post, what I mostly had in mind was, uh, is it possible to to get a little bit more pragmatic about the nuts and bolts of, of really building a bot? I think we've seen a whole lot of um, excitement and sound around what bots uh, hold a lot of potential for, but there hasn't been a ton of really solid, satisfying feeling results. So I wanted to dig into that and and possibly just share some of what we think has helped us push forward a bit in that regard. As a company, we're trying to make internet business personal. That's our mission. But does the use of bots go against that? Yeah, there's actually, I think, a lot of nuance to this one. It's certainly something we've asked ourselves quite a bit. Um, I think it's more of a question of what's appropriate for different, different cases. Like, if you think about the history of interacting with businesses online, a lot of nightmare scenarios start to emerge. Uh, I think traditionally we over-indexed in terms of not making humans accessible at all. That is not, I think, to say that there aren't a set of what I think of as commodity questions that people need answered online. So just simple examples. Imagine if someone has a question like, what was I charged last month on my account? Or um, how do like how do I reset my password? Things like that. A lot of those commodity questions, in my opinion, are best served by a bot. They're immediate. It's a straight answer to a straight question. And that leaves kind of the hard problems that require creativity and empathy and problem solving. That leaves that to humans to solve, which I think is just a much better mapping there. Your eight principles, which obviously people can read about on the blog, seem to boil down to be honest with your user and don't try to use bots for everything. Is that fair? It's not unfair. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. In fact, actually, I could probably boil it down a, a, a tiny bit more for you and make it even more simple, which is really just to focus on the end user experience. Um, a lot of the temptation, I think, that emerges for designers when there's so much sound and fury and hype around these exciting new things like conversational commerce uh, is to apply them to all sorts of different things. And it becomes this kind of when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail type thing. Um, I think if you just always focus on what's best for the end user rather than what's really fun or interesting to apply, uh, that'll usually drive you towards the best results. So it's quite a universal thing there that you could just is broken down a bit more to, to focus on the bot case. How much personality should a bot have? Because to me, it feels like there's a bit of a spectrum here. If it's got too much personality, you risk fooling your user. If it's too robotic, it's just a bad experience. Mm, I I somewhat didn't intentionally go deep on this one, actually, in the principles, because I'm I'm not convinced, actually, that there is a universal principle that's the right answer here. Um, there, there probably is one or the closest one that I listed was don't pretend to be human. Again, I feel like that's kind of essential to having just a good user experience, like to 
avoiding end user confusion. And so that's just good design. Um, on the question of personality, really for me, so much of that comes down to brand and how your brand wants to be represented. So is your tone of voice of your product overall, is it somewhat like whimsical, like, like Slack, for example? Is it more utilitarian and neutral like Google? And, and so those are the kind of things I think that, that inform the personality question. One, one small thing I'd add to that is almost like a warning is that uh, given that bots are somewhat prone to error and misunderstanding at the moment where we're at with the technology, it can be frustrating to get like a really funny jokey bot coming back at you when all you want is a straight answer and the technology is actually failing. So there's a kind of a tightrope to be walked there if you are going down the more uh, whimsical route, I guess. Obviously, there's a lot happening in this space with chatbots and messaging. The medium is evolving and presumably the design principles will evolve as the medium evolves. Do you think any of the eight are on shaky ground already or which do you think might come under pressure first? I will say that we're really, really in the early, early stages of this. Like what we've seen so far in terms of actual product, I would consider it to be like the nascent stuff in this space. And and perhaps it's fair to also say there's been a bit of bandwagon jumping going on with people just trying new things for the hell of it. Um, the nature of design principles, which is really what the post was about, is that they help you to make hard decisions, right? They guide you through the, that decision-making process. And that's why, as I said in the post, that truisms generally make for really poor design principles because they just don't help you in that regard. I think we will see standards start to evolve in terms of how uh, we expect and basic UI patterns for how to interact with bots. And so just by virtue of that, some uh, of these principles would probably become obsolete simply because they don't. there are no hard decisions to make about how to execute them anymore. As to whether or not we're, you know, some of these are on shaky ground, uh, there's one in there about structured replies. Um, there's another about providing an escape hatch to talk to humans. Really, those are in there to compensate for deficiencies that exist today in the technology around chatbots. Things like AI and NLP, we're basically not at the HAL 9000 moment yet. And so we have to, we have to compensate for that. The closer we get to really solving those problems in a satisfying way, the less necessary those crutches become. And so I think it's totally possible that those things will also fall away. The timeline for that happening is highly speculative. So uh, it's really hard to pinpoint and say like when those things will actually change. Uh, I don't think we'll be looking forward to Emmett Connolly's 2017 design principles anytime soon then. I'll keep you posted, yeah. Emmett, thanks for coming in today. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.